Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How is everyone? I hope you're keeping cool. I'm trying to keep cool. Got the AC on as, as, as usual in the background. Ah, oh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the evening. At least for an hour, anyway. Uh, I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. Hang on, look at this thing. I found that, you know, the you know the hat has that little dot on top. If I have it up there and have the headphones on there, it gives me a headache. Anyway, uh, I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 35 strong up and down the states, which means that if you have a paranormal issue, you can call you can call us, email us, private message us, and we can find a way to get to you no matter what, because we have people located in different counties, obviously. Um, so uh, we can help you out. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. I'm waiting for our guest to come in. And if he doesn't, then we're going to talk ghost hunting. We'll just sit here and idly chat. It's not a big deal. I know that, you know, I'm not expecting a huge crowd tonight because of the hearings going on TV tonight. So I'm not, the, so I'm thinking there's not going to be a huge crowd tonight watching, you know, so if he doesn't come on, that's fine. We could just sit here at chat again. Uh, if you're watching from YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. We're looking for subscribers. And there's a little man at the bottom right hand corner who, if you click on him, that'll make you a subscriber and you'll get to see all the videos we've done. I'm a journalist, so there's all kinds of topics on there. There's a little bit of something for everybody over there. If you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button. I'm looking for followers. You know, we're, we're, we're starting to roll on our followers over at Facebook, and I'm real excited about that. And if you uh, have a share button, whether it's on YouTube or on Facebook, please share the show with somebody, whether it's a friend or an enemy. We're equal opportunity here. We just try, we're just trying to get the word out about the show. All right. We can do this. Hey. hey, how you doing? Okay, how are you? Good. Sometimes StreamYard works for people, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry about the, uh, I, I, I don't know why it's not working. I haven't done a lot of interviews where it doesn't work, but can you do That's not a problem. So, I, yeah, I, I wonder if that gets up in there now and, and to start Cam on mute, but I don't know what Understood. Are you, I hear feedback. Are you, are you hearing that? There's a lot of... Yeah, I'm uh, hearing a lot of feedback, feedback, and there should be a lot of feedback. Let me see if it's so online. I think it's because my computer is working for the microphone or something. Right. But I don't know. I don't know what we, we can let do me to make it better. Well, let me turn my main mic down. Maybe that's better. Okay. That's a little better. So tell me about you, sir. Well, I work as a uh, counselor doing psychotherapy for most of, you know, the week and uh, Fridays I do writing and research. Um, and so I've, I started doing research on the book Drugs as Weapons Against Us. It's on the screen uh, in about 1990 or 91 when I was working as an addictions counselor in Baltimore. And I'm still hearing some feedback and problems with the uh, sound, but hopefully there's a way to make that better. Nonetheless, and so uh, I ended up finding that 
drugs are used uh, for social control. And started when I, you know, I, part of my research included. I'm sorry, the, the sound is so bad, I can't even. Okay. Uh, I'm just hearing myself too much, and it's just not working so well. Okay. So maybe I can mute. Maybe I can mute uh, myself here. Okay, there we go. I think that's better. Um, okay. So as long as it sounds okay for you, I'm yeah, good. that's fine. We got but this. Perfect. Good. So, so uh, I, I met, uh, you know, I saw John Stockwell, a former CIA agent whistleblower, speak in Baltimore at a local college, and I talked to him after his speech in 1990, and he told me uh, about how the CIA was running drugs, running heroin from Vietnam into the United States, and uh, because he was a longtime CIA member before mm -hmm. he became a whistleblower, and uh, then 1991. Uh, former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark spoke in Baltimore and uh, the Maryland Institute College of Art. And I asked him after his talk on a different political issue, uh, yeah, I asked him what he, what he thinks that uh, the government uses drugs for against, you know, you know in terms of uh, the population and the masses. And he says he thinks uh, the government uses drugs to sedate and divide the masses. Wow. And that kind of fit what I was thinking at the time in terms of uh, doing counseling people with addictions while also studying politics. I was I had gotten involved in a social study group at that time mm -hmm. with some union, union organizer who invited me to this uh, social study you know, reading group. And so I started researching uh, other drugs such as acid. Um, because I, I had a bad experience with acid in college. I actually had fun on acid, but um, I found that after I was done tripping and tried to get into my schoolwork my freshman year of college, um, after school seeming, you know, seemingly being so easy after the acid, it just got so much harder all of a sudden. And that lasted for at least a year, you know, after I stopped you know, taking acid. So I, um, I started, started researching that more, and I found... Uh, in the book uh, Acid Dreams uh, by Martin Lee, mm -hmm. founder of a group called Fairness and Accuracy Reporting, that the top uh, acid dealer in the world was found in the 1970s to be a longtime uh, U.S. intelligence agent named Ronald Stark. Um, then, so that's what led me towards more and more research, and I found that uh, US, you know, a lot of evidence that the U.S. intelligence had manipulated musicians to help promote drugs, and they also ended up manipulating some anti-war activists to get involved with taking acid and doing other drugs, and they inadvertently promoted you know, the use of acid amongst activists. And that's kind of what had kind of uh, attracted me to psychedelics and drugs because they kind of were paired with that 60s radical left anti-war movement, which I, I was loosely, um, into, which I was interested in college um, until the acid started messing with my head and, and I had had to work so much harder to um, you know, get, get good grades in college. So after all that research, I finally um, tried to get, you know, I was working on a political novel based on these themes. And then um, when I found out about the rap star, Tupac Shakur and his um, Black Panther family. I had been um, counseling a, a guy who uh, said my father was a Black Panther killed by the police in Baltimore. And so he had became a, uh, a character in my political novel. And so I started researching the New York, Black, leading New York Black Panthers, and they were the Shakur 
Michael Warren and said, do you think they're targeting Tupac like they did Black Panther leading parents? And he said, yes, and nobody's writing about it. So I wrote an article about it for a local uh, zine, and then I ended up turning that into a much longer article for a um, uh, magazine called Covert Action Quarterly, started by CIA whistleblower Phil Agee. And, um, and, and when I published that, people that were close to Tupac, like his business manager, former Black Panther, Watani Taihimba, and his New York trial lawyer, and, you know, and um, his actually uh, national lawyer, Chokwe Lumumba, mm-hmm. uh, all opened up in a much bigger way to me and, and encouraged And when I went, they also encouraged me to turn that into a, you know, a full-length book. So I ended up taking a tangent from the Drugs as Weapons Against Us to come out with the book. The FBI war on Tupac Shakur, Black Leaders, and then um, in 2007, turned that into a film in 2009, and then in 2015, I published Drugs as Weapons Against the CIA's Murders, Targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendrix, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists, which you see on the screen, mm-hmm. and I turned that into a film and, uh, that came out within January 2019 with um, Gravitas Ventures distributing it, and um, it's, you know, it's got the same had, you know, main title with the uh, subtitle of CIA War on Musicians and Activists. I thankfully shortened the uh, subtitle for that. But uh, nonetheless, um, I'm just happy to get these ideas out there to hopefully warn people about what's going on and hopefully try to save, you know, more musicians and help people not be duped into uh, hurting their minds with drugs that can do that like psychedelics, but also, you know, drugs like cocaine and heroin that can hurt their lives. Because as I, you know, kept doing counseling in general, I also did some addictions counseling and would run across people that said, you know, like young guitarists who said they started using heroin because they loved Kurt Cobain and they just wanted to emulate him. And meanwhile, you know, all the best evidence is that he was duped right. into taking heroin regularly by um, problematic people around him found evidence were connected to, to U.S. intelligence. Well, when you talk about musicians and stuff, who are we talking about? I know you talked about Tupac, so who else is it? Who else do you think has been, has been a victim to this? Yeah, so, uh, well, I, you know, I go over the main ones were John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. Kurt Cobain, and Tupac Shakur, but I also get into the Rolling Stones, now, Brian Jones uh, died young in 1969, of course, at the age of 27, that you know, magic number. But um, Brian Jones was sobering up before his death, and uh, a good friend of his, um, a guy named Fitzgerald, he's a member of the Guinness beer-owning family, the Fitzgeralds, um, said he, he witnessed, you know, he, he couldn't get into back into Brian Jones's house when he was over-visiting, and he had gone mm-hmm. into a village nearby to pick up some things because someone had pretended like they were throwing a party at Brian Jones' house all of a sudden. He goes around the back to see what's going on with this sudden party and uh, he sees several people drowning someone in Brian Jones's pool, swimming pool. And he ends up finding, and so someone pops out of the woods where he was, um, Fitzpatrick was, and says, you better get out of here, Fitzpatrick, or you'll be next. And so um, he was scared to death, but he uh, ended up finding out, of course, that that person that drowned in the swimming pool was Brian Jones, his friend Brian Jones. And he ended up up talking about it in a memoir he wrote um, decades later. He was scared to talk about it for decades with his threats. And so, um, you know, talk about that, talk about uh, Mick Jagger, because the fact that it was 
who was a um, undercover FBI agent who also worked for uh, MI5, which is British FBI, a guy David Schneiderman, he was they called the Acid King, who convinced uh, Mick Jagger to take his first hit of acid in 1967. And people dosed John Lennon and George Harrison um, the first time they took acid. And that was George Harrison's dentist who had just had the two over with their partners uh, for a little dinner party and then put the acid in, in, his, in their coffee without them knowing it. Wow. And so um, this came right after um, CIA um, MKUltra director, assistant director, Robert Lashbrook, had come over to London with tons of acid, tons of agents and uh, lots of money and instructed those agents to get acid in as many musicians' hands as possible, according to Ernest Hemingway's uh, editor's book, this guy named A.E. Hotchner's book about the Stones called Blown Away, the whole history of the Rolling Stones and the London scene. And, and so they, um, this is some of what was going on. And, uh, you know, and this was uh, the CIA's MKL, Project MKUltra was a huge uh, project with the uh, 149 sub-projects, and the goal of that project, according to the documents, it was to, to use, um, to target, um, you know, individuals with unconventional warfare, use, use drugs to target individuals, you know, in, in a form of unconventional warfare. And when we, we think about warfare, we think about foreign lands, but right. this was people that dissented against the government's racist, um, you know, pro-war agenda. Yeah, that was my question. Was why? I mean, you know, because they're they're just entertainers. Yeah. So, so you think, it, or or you know, it was about these people that were against the war. Yeah. So um, the Senate Church Committee in the nineteen seventies um, basically uh, unveiled loads of uh, U.S. intelligence documents that they they came upon, and some of those documents targeted. Uh, Talked about targeting political musicians, mm-hmm. and among with in in targeting political musicians, what they would use is they said use you know women you know get women in their lives and say use sex and drugs to manipulate them, promote um, conflicts between musicians, and um, things like that. And so that's some of what happened with, um, for example, with Tupac with with promoting conflict between his supposed East Coast versus West Coast rap robbery, uh-huh. for example, but also, you know, getting women in their lives that, and with, say, getting sex and drugs in their lives, there's evidence that, um, good evidence, uh, that Courtney Love was actually working with the CIA, believe it or not. Um, not, it's hard to know if she even knew what she was doing because um, she was, you know, she, from early on, from, uh, early childhood from the three or four years old, according to different you know, memoirs, you know, books about her, she was already um, being uh, introduced. I mean, first, first thing, she was going to counseling regularly, which is a bizarre age to get counseling at three or four years old. Mm-hmm. But also, um, she said in a letter to her father, biological father, Hank Harrison, that um, her, her counselors were regularly having sex with her. Wow. And they were also giving her. They were also giving her um, psychohypnotic drugs, like two and all and second all. So when she was a young teenager, she was already naming these uh, exotic drugs, like two and all and second alls, which are were MK Ultra drugs. And one of the projects, one of the subprojects of MK Ultra, was using drugs and abuse and hypnosis to create um, dissociative 
is that way. As a matter of fact, a, matter of fact uh, a psychotherapist brought two of her patients, two women who were actually about the same age as Courtney Love, mm-hmm. um, and one of them was from the same area, you know, in Seattle as Courtney Love in the Washington State area. Uh, but she brought them to a hearing, a you know, presidential uh, commission hearing in the 1990s to testify. And they said that um, when they were kids, they, you know, they were uh, abused sexually. They were abused with uh, acid and other drugs. They were abused in other ways. And, and uh, they only found it all out when, you know, they went to psychotherapy and, and were able to figure out what was going on, you know, in, the, in their subconscious and basically, the CIA said they were using, the CIA was using them uh, as, as like prostitutes, uh, as wow. tools, as spies um, to blackmail people, to find out secrets, to you know, for espionage and all different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you see the intelligence documents on, you know, how they're going to attack political positions, it, it starts to make sense because Kurt, uh, Courtney Love was the person that they got. According to all accounts of people close to Kurt Cobain, got him using you know heroin regularly. In a similar way, uh, a, um, a biography of John Lennon and Yoko Ono said the same thing happened with Yoko Ono coming into uh, John Lennon's life. She was the first person that got him hooked on heroin, and she was the person that highly encouraged him to keep using acid, even though he thought acid was destroying his mind. Mm-hmm. And this is after, of course, that you know MK Ultra. Um, Assistant Director Robert Lashbrook had had, got, had come to London and instructed the agents to get you know these all these musicians tripping. So and George, you know, the dentist uh, doses them, which is so bizarre too. So what? So the thing about Courtney Love is that when she was 17 years old, she she had just turned 17 when she visited her father, who was doing research on a book in uh, Dublin, Ireland. Now he lost touch with his daughter for a number of years because. Um, uh, Courtney Love's biological mother was a woman who um, was abused, sexually abused herself by her extremely wealthy parents. She was adopted, sexually abused, and extremely wealthy parents, uh, Hank Harrison says, paid his lawyer off and made him lose custody and sent him into a deep depression about losing custody of his daughter and not being able to see her for years. So Courtney Love ends up in a juvenile delinquent facility because she was like kind of given up on by her biological mother. And he and sends him letters and to get her out of there. He ends up getting her out of there and thought he was you know, getting his daughter back, but she had, she had turned into a monster. He said she was doing all kinds of drugs. She was uh, prostituting herself. She was leaving needles around his basement, um, you know, from injecting heroin and stuff. And so he didn't know what to make of it, what to do with her. But um, he ends up having to, doing research uh, for a book he was writing. He'd written a few books after, and uh, he was in Dublin, Ireland. She came out to visit him there when she was 16, just turning 17. And it turns out she brings um, a thousand hits of acid out there. Mm-hmm. And he says he, uh, someone that befriended him, a guy named Stephen O'Leary, and um, he says that guy says, well, I just loved your book on the Grateful Dead because Hank Harrison had been a, uh, the, the first manager of the Warlocks who turned into the Grateful Dead and uh, written a book about them. And so, um, so then... This guy befriends Hank Harrison and starts having sex with his daughter. And wow. Hank Harrison he didn't know what to do about it, but he also did, he said his daughter was, was prostituting on the streets of Dublin to you know, just to get, get more money, and he couldn't even do anything about it. And so then Stephen O'Leary starts having sex with her and then bring, takes her to uh, Liverpool, England, where she uh, 
cokes, things like that. Hank Garrison said she slept with all these people, gave out drugs like candy, but especially acid. So by giving out the acid, she was duplicating what Robert Lashbrook was doing in the 60s. And uh, she ended up duplicating that, you know, kind of work in top top punk music scenes all over the United States. She went to Portland and did that. She went to Los Angeles and did that. She did the same thing in Seattle, as we all know. And uh, she really disrupted music scenes with, with giving out tons of drugs, um, including acid, and um, really messing up some guys' minds. And she married you know another guy before Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that that James Moreland, who was the top punk musician in L.A. at the time, and that guy said he thought he was marrying this uh, you know, feminist left-wing woman. And it turns out she was like a right-wing Phil Diller who said she had uh, slept with generals in Alaska who told her that he convinced her, you know, that the wars are all good for us. And so, you know, this, so James Moore didn't know what, what he was talking about when he, when he was against war. And so, um, and when he uh, tried to go against her, she would, you know, get mafia guys to, to beat him up. Wow. So she was, she was just, uh, something really bizarre and still is sadly enough. Um, but, and they, you know, this, this didn't just happen with, uh, Asian women it happened with Asian men. I mean, obviously with such great activists as uh, Malcolm X's daughters, um, mm-hmm. it came out that FBI agent had become uh, one of Malcolm X's daughter's boyfriends and talked her into a plot to uh, kill Louis Farrakhan as, uh, to say that Louis Farrakhan was the reason for her dad's death. And uh, she ended up getting arrested for that, but this guy had also introduced her to drugs too. So it went both ways with the way they used agents to you know, develop romantic relationships with um, act, you know, activists or activist positions and other forms of activists. Well, it makes sense because, um, you know, when you look back on Elvis Presley's life, there's the rumors that he was actually working with the FBI as well. And it, what you're saying makes a lot of sense because these people have so much influence on everybody, you know, through their music and people listen to them with their views. That you know, if they are mouthing off, if, you know, if they are mouthing off and they're, and they're going against whatever is the is the political run, then they're going to try and do something about it. Right, right, because they're so influential. And CIA, what they want to do, they know they can't control us politically. I mean, they can't control us physically because we outnumber them. We outnumber the the oligarchs, right. the wealthiest families, and the CIA is basically does the bidding of the oligarchs. The best. Um, research on the CIA is that it was started by the wealthiest families. They placed their own family members in the top positions. And like the Rockefellers and the top wealthiest families, lawyers were the Dulles brothers. And those lawyers um, end up becoming like, you know, Secretary of State and the longest you know, running member of the uh, longest running director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. And so, um, you know, some, there's good books like the CIA, the Cult of Intelligence by the Victor Marchetti, who was a CI whistleblower, who was the only Catholic to get close to the top at that time, mm-hmm. by being an assistant director at one point um, of the CIA. But he said that all the other people around him were from the wealthiest white Anglo-Saxon Protestant families. And um, so he blew the whistle. Um, there was a good British researcher named Francis Stoner Saunders who wrote The Cultural Cold War, who says he said the same thing about the, the wealthiest families? Families got their own family members at the top of the CIA, and the CIA was the uh, made the director, you know, and 
supervised all the other 14-plus intelligence agencies. Right. So they were extremely powerful that way. And it only rivaled maybe by naval intelligence because their connection to British intelligence. But nonetheless, um, and that's how they controlled you know, intelligence in this world. And so the best evidence about Elvis is that um, when he started rising to the top at 21 years old, he was like an instant star. It was really unbelievable. And into his life comes a guy who was a, you know, a uh, general in the Army Reserves. And it's known that U.S. intelligence used Army Reserve officers in, in their, you know, to do their bidding. And so that guy um, ended up uh, giving, introducing Elvis to uppers and downers, mm-hmm. speed and, and you know, barbiturates, and really controlled him thereafter. He was like a ghost of himself. But they gave him so many uppers and downers that he was giving it to a bunch of other musicians. Mm-hmm. They were obviously manipulating him to do that. You know, when, if you saw the movie about Johnny Cash right. with Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon, um, you know, you saw like, that scene where Elvis gave him a bunch of uppers and downers, and he was the most influential musician, and he was manipulated, obviously, to do that. He wouldn't have done that on his own. But the, why did they do that to Elvis? They had an FBI file on him already. And the reason is, is because he was the he, the biggest integrationist around, the most influential guy mm-hmm. to go against segregation. He was going to black concerts. He, he said, you know, they tried to call him the king of rock and roll. He says, I'm not the king of rock and roll. Bo Diddley and all these great black mm-hmm. blues musicians are the kings of rock and roll, not me. And so he was uh, a worry to the oligarchs who, who were so racist and wanted segregation and wanted integration. And so um, John Lennon said, you know, uh, they, asked, they asked John Lennon what they thought about Elvis' death in the 1970s. He said, um, you know, to me, Elvis died when they, they forced him into uh, the Army, which was in 1958. He says, you know, to me, after that, he was, it was just a living death. And so when they forced Elvis into the Army, they even controlled him even more because they sent him to Germany. Germany was the center of MKUltra experiments. They were doing ghastly things with MKUltra experiments in Germany post-World War II because they had loads of uh, Nazi scientists working you know, as part of MKUltra over there. So they also gave safe haven to and then brought them back to the United States to continue with their MKUltra work, according to all the leading you know, books about um, MKUltra. Mm-hmm. And so this was you know, what they probably did to Elvis is the best evidence because they controlled him, his career thereafter. They wouldn't let him do any of the movies he wanted to do. They wouldn't let him do a live concert for about 10 years. It was really bizarre, you know, the way they controlled, uh, General, you know, it, it was right. called Tom Parker, his manager controlled him that way. And they had like a, they had a big, what they called the Memphis Mafia surrounding him also, you know, working on that control of right. Elvis. Right. It's interesting to me, you know, just to, to hear what you're saying. How long, you know, how long did it take you to amass all this information? Well, as I say, I, I really started in 1990 um, mm-hmm. working as an addictions counselor, and I didn't come out with the book until 2015. So, yeah, it was, it was about 25 years of uh, research. Um, and, you know, when all these different uh, activists, you know, because I also cover students for Democratic Society and the Black Panther Party, and uh, you know, show the ways that drugs were used as weapons against them. And uh, the way they manipulated and all that, but um, you know, so yeah, twenty-five years, basically. In a way, it's kind of scary when you talk about this because of what's going on with the um, opioid thing right now. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Because you know, the opioids come. There's two biggest spots 
uh, sources for opioids in, in the world, and they're in areas they call the Golden Triangle for, for opium and the Golden Crescent for opium. And it's not a coincidence that those two, two areas are the areas for the longest wars in U.S. history. First is the Vietnam War, where we were fighting supposedly for freedom from the Vietnamese, but um, really we were fighting for control of the opium crops, you know, the uh, poppy fields, were the best, you know, which produces opium and heroin over in that area. And then um, the, the uh, war that surpassed that in length was the Afghanistan War, mm-hmm. which is the Golden Crescent for poppy fields and opium crops and heroin. And so uh, those were our two longest wars, and it's not not a um, coincidence because that's a very you know, profitable crop. It's interesting because I know there was a movie a while back where people were controlled by drugs. And the way and the way they were able to control them was, was they would withdraw the drugs, you know, from these people, and then they were desperate for drugs, and it went on from there. It's kind of like what you're seeing now with with the opioid epidemic that the government's got complete control over this, and people and the doctors are scared to death of them, you know, closing their their practices, and so the people are getting cut back or they're not getting their their payments. Right, right. Yeah, no, I hear you. It's um. It's a shame. I wish, you know, people, of course, could get pain as they need it, but I also wish they could, uh, you know, get it in a controlled way that then mm-hmm. tapers them off quickly and mm-hmm. or find even other methods for pain release, relief that doesn't right. involve opioids if they could first try things like acupuncture and other methods that, that mm-hmm. would be better. But um, nonetheless, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, worrisome that the way it's happening and the way, uh, you know, the, the like Purdue Pharma and these other Johnson and Johnson who are both you know, threatened with law, who have gone through lawsuits and settled lawsuits around the country. Right. Um, were were pushing OxyContin like crazy, getting so many people addicted. Yes. It's really, really terrible. Well, what I find frightening too is I know people that that take like hydrocodone and things like that, and they're in a database. They're, they're in a government database. Like this friend of mine, you know, had to transfer pharmacies. And she goes out to this other pharmacy to fill out paperwork, and they're like, "Don't worry about it. You're already you're already in the the federal database." Yeah, so they know who who's taking this stuff and who they're going to cut back when, you know, when they want to. Wow, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, these databases are worrisome too. Whenever they have databases on us, it's always worrisome too. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just such an authoritarian state we're dealing with. You know, it's. Surveillance state we live in. So what you well, what you've been saying is that I mean it's not only the big rock it's not only the big celebrities that they're controlling. I mean I mean, I mean they're trying to keep control of, of the normal citizens too. Oh yeah, sure. I mean it's all about you know as I say when Ramsey Clark, the former U.S. Attorney General under um, uh, Lyndon, you know, President Lyndon Johnson, Democrat after Kennedy, I think he might started with the Kennedys, but then you know it's was uh, Attorney General. Under Johnson, I'm not sure, but he he become yeah he become a radical activist actually after he left um, you know being U.S. Attorney General. It's hard to believe, but he did. He started a group called Answer, mm-hmm. which was uh, against racism and, and war. And um, he uh, you know so he says the guy he thinks the government uses drugs to sedate, divide the, the masses, mm-hmm. and um, and I would just add oppress the masses, you know, by by use of these drugs hurting our minds mm-hmm. for our best abilities. And um, so, yeah, the, the real main point is to affect the masses, but um, particularly 
use resources right. or against, you know, activism against uh, you know, racism, activism for civil rights, um, you know, because they're so racist. I mean, the, the, their history, the history of these wealthiest families is just absolutely genocidally racist, you know. The, right. The, uh, the eugenics movement was, uh, you, know, stern, you know, really sterilized tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of people of color and and ethnic, you know, folks in this country, and um, you know, and they actually uh, eliminated, you know, uh, you know, kids. I mean, they, they, you know, they had a uh, film during the eugenics movement. It was called the Eugenics Movement. It started in the 19 teens and lasted at least until officially won the law books, at least until World War II with Nazi Germany. And uh, you know, most accounts actually have the eugenics movie movement continuing till today. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. just undercover. Now, it's not so undercover in Britain. They actually are a little more open in Britain. But uh, in the United States, they kind of keep it undercover. And you can find some brochures that show the eugenics, you know, meetings in the 1960s. But generally speaking, they were undercover. Um, but the wealthiest families were the ones behind it. The Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Harrimans, J- you know, J.P. Morgan interests were all behind that, you know, funded that eugenics movement. So, And they had, they had a film called The Black Stork in the 1920s that uh film that ran for 10 straight years and was like the uh most watched film in the country uh lauding doctors that killed what they call defective babies and that's babies that they said you know that are defective because they're really from, from people of color and immigrants and they pretended like these were defective people for all kinds of different crazy reasons like being a pauper and being poor or um you know, being having addiction or having um, being you know truant, being late on paying you know fines, all kinds of ridiculous things they said were genetically um, you know uh, defective. It's really bizarre stuff, but um, they pretend it was like this crazy pseudoscience that um, they put tons of money into these colleges to back, and they got laws passed in 30 states under eugenics, you know, uh, that were just racist genocidal laws and then our that actually you know a special when um it was a cbs it was rock center with um rock, uh who was it um williams brian williams did a mm-hmm. special on it where they said that some of the some of the southern states kept those eugenics laws on their books until 1970s or wow. 19, early 1980s i believe that uh were sterilizing you know uh black youth it's really crazy stuff really horrible stuff it's kind of like um, like the drug of choice. Do you know now like what drug the government is is, is, is pushing on people? Is, is it some kind of liquid or is it some kind of pill or, or what is it? Yeah, I mean, you know, with the MKUltra, when you look at the drugs that were tested with the uh, Project MKUltra, there's dozens of different drugs. Um, you know, anything from the ones we know best, like heroin and cocaine, mm-hmm. but um, also LSD, um, Sadly enough, they were actually experimenting with weed too to use for um, to get the truth out of people. And so they're you know with this incredibly strong weed they have today. I mean, yeah, granted, weed um, used to be more harmless because it was a little weaker. In, yeah. You know, when when I was growing up in the eighties <laughs> and all, but come these days, it's gotten so incredibly strong that um, you know it can be problematic for people. But um, you know, the bigger ones, of course, of course, heroin and cocaine are problematic, but acid and uh, super psychedelics like BZ and STP um, are problematic. Um, ecstasy was a drug that um, MKUltra was working.
working with Precursor and was experimenting with some people. Um, there's just so many different kinds of drugs these days, though. I can't even, I don't even know them all. But um, there's thoughts that uh, these bath salts you know, might come out of MKUltra because um, MKUltra kept going, according to CIA whistleblowers. They just put it under different names after they, you know, if they were found out about it, and they tried mm-hmm. to shred all the documents. Now, there was a best estimate, so there was about 200,000 documents, but they only shredded, they shredded about 90% of them, but 10% of them were found in the accounting files, duplicated, mm-hmm. and that's where we, we get a lot of our evidence from that 10%. Nonetheless, it's just, you know, um, there's just a lot of the sources of the information. I have, have them on my book and film, people saying them in my film, but much more in my book with, with the uh, thousand or so endnotes, you know, for the sources of the information. But yeah, there's lots of different drugs being used, and uh, the best evidence is that most of these drugs did come out of MKUltra. Of course, some are old, like psilocybin, you know, right. psychedelic mushrooms, but all these really processed manufactured drugs like acid and super psychedelics and you know, the cocaine, which is um, really just super processed coca leaves. Coca leaves aren't really the issue or a problem, but the super processed cocaine obviously is addictive and a problem. And so that's, you know, they're using a lot of different things these days. And again, it's, uh, you know, they probably want to divert people, you know, potential activists from their, from their most, you know, best mental potential to mm-hmm. fight the oligarchs. And, um, and I think they're being successful with it. Well, when you talk about the wealthy families that have their kids or whatever, the CIA, perfect example of that is the Bush family. You know, because... Yeah, the Bush family, yeah. I mean, it goes back um, to um, you know, Prescott Bush, who was, um, he was head of the president of Brown Brothers Harriman. Now, so um, the Brown Brothers were the largest financiers in the world, and they actually come from um, Alexander Brown's uh, sons. We started in Baltimore, my hometown, and uh, but they went international, and Harriman uh, was a uh, railroad magnate. But so those two, um, I mentioned Brown Brothers Harriman because they were actually uh, found guilty, um, you know, of uh, violating the Trading with the Enemy Act in World War II because they were helping fund Hitler, um, helping fund Bison and Hitler. Mm -hmm. And so they were found guilty of of that. And but it was really the J.P. Morgan interest also, along with the Rockefellers, who who um, kind of. intermingled and shared boards of directors with IG Farben, the largest mm-hmm. uh, chemical company in the world, who was really the largest company in England that helped also helped fund Hitler, you know, fund the Nazi war machine, mm-hmm. um, owned the largest concentration camp in, the, in Germany, which was Auschwitz, which was many camps in one. And, uh, but she further had, you know, uh, people like Edwin Black wrote a uh, best-selling book called IBM and the Holocaust, because IBM helped with the Computerization uh, to make the Holocaust so efficient with the uh, tattoos um, being kind of computerized to make it so efficient. And a um, bunch of, you know, uh, you had Henry Ford, who was incredibly uh, anti Semitic, and um, General Motors, both helping the Hitler war machine, too. So there's a number of companies that were behind all of this, too. Um, you know, I had a but, friend, I had a friend who worked security for the concerts here locally. And I remember her telling me the after parties, you know, that that, that, that these that these rock stars would have. And 
I don't and how the cocaine was in big old punch bowls and stuff. I mean, obviously they're buying it from so. I mean, obviously they have the money to buy it, but I mean they're, they're also getting it from somewhere else. Yeah. To have yeah. that much, I mean, that's a lot of cocaine. Oh yeah, sure, and that's the way they do things. Is they they just they have you know I I, I met a uh, a guy um, who was a you know worked as a kind of rock promoter rock manager who who was an addict and he said the labels were were uh, always wanted him to supply the musicians with like unlimited drugs and that was partly to control them mm-hmm. but also partly to have the musicians promote drugs to the masses and so you know to sedate the body depress us you know mm-hmm. and control us and have us chasing our own tail with our own either drug abuse or drug addiction instead of trying to change society for the better and and see you know how the wealthiest um are controlling us and taking more and more of our money for colleges like this price go up forever you know never stop going down just keep going up and our Credit is so much more expensive than any other industrialized country in the world in terms of, in terms of college prices. But also, that's why you know we don't have national health care and uh, things like that, and we have a lot of free press in, in a lot of the industrialized countries. So the other industrialized countries. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, that's some of the way they do it is is manipulating musicians again, yeah, to get involved in the drugs and and control them better that way, while also helping them promote. Um, drugs, but when these musicians start sobering up, as Kurt Cobain, John Lennon, mm-hmm. Tupac Shakur, and Jimi Hendrix, you know, were all doing, as well as Brian Jones, the founder of the Rolling Stones, was mm-hmm. doing at the end of their life, that's when they uh, were done away with, because uh, they were threatening to promote sobriety, and that was that was a, a major concern. Is that happening with a lot of them? Because I mean, if, you know, I, mean, I hate to say not everyone when they die, but the majority of, uh, of the of those people that die, it's usually an overdose. Yeah, well, you know, people like Janis Joplin was um, trying to kick heroin, and she was working hard to kick heroin, and um, but she, you know, she relapsed. Someone, you know, got her, you know, attempted her, got her to relapse, and gave her a hot shot, what they call a hot shot, which is an overly pure, you know, dose of heroin, right, right. and. Um, and that's how she died. Which, but her sister talked about her trying to kick heroin. Her sister talked about the fact that there was a strong rumor that the CIA did, did her, her in, Janice Joplin in, partly because Janice was doing um, the largest anti-war benefits of, of that time mm-hmm. at Shea Stadium and Philadelphia's baseball stadium, which you know were, were unprecedented. And... Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the way it happened with her. And now, Jimi Hendrix, they pretend like he died of, of heroin, and they, you know, but um, he was not, he never had a problem with heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, he never, he was actually had gotten away from all kinds of major drugs. He had turned on to activism in a big way, and he, and he just smoked a little bit of weed every now and then or drank a beer here and there, but people were pushing drugs on him like crazy, and they were dropping stuff in his drinks and, and all that stuff, and it is very mysterious. They don't know why he died. Um, you know, so many aspects of his death didn't make sense. And, he, you know, it's still to this day, they, don't, they say they don't know. You know, his, it's inconclusive what actually killed him. Mm-hmm. But the best evidence is, is that his manager, former MI6 agent, Mike Jeffrey, who I show the evidence was continued to be part of the MI6, which is British CIA, um, he admitted to two different people 
psychedelic that hurt an anti-war benefit Hendricks tried to do. And also it had planted uh, cocaine on him in the airport to get him in trouble with, uh, you know, when he was trying to fly right. somewhere. And so that's, that's the way these things happen. So Hendricks, you know, uh, counter to what everyone's saying, the best bi- biography of Hendricks, Electric Gypsy, shows that he was getting away from all drugs and alcohol. And as Beyonce said the same thing. And, you know, he's basically, you know, drank a little bit or whatever, smoked a little bit weed, but got away from all other drugs mm-hmm. but around the time of his death. And uh, same applies to Kurt Cobain, who said in interviews for like MTV, he found a cure to a stomach problem and, and a blood test right you know, a month before he died, showed that there was no illicit substances in the system, and anyone who knows heroin addiction knows you got to use heroin every day when you have a heroin addiction. So he, he couldn't have had heroin addiction, heroin addiction at that time. John Lennon had gotten away from all the drugs and just secluded himself in fatherhood for years before he came came out again with two double albums, you know, two albums right before his death. Um, and Tupac Shakur, according to witnesses, did not smoke weed or drink at a party where all the other rappers were drinking and smoking weed, and but said just dance for hours with a um, you know a woman on the dance floor and wouldn't touch any weed or alcohol um, shortly you know, before his death. So there's a uh, you know, there's a common theme that they were threatening to promote some sobriety, you know, so. I find it interesting because while you're saying this, I, I think about Prince and how Prince. he pa- yeah, how he passed away. Yeah, yeah, that's, that was that, that seems kind of shady to me, too. Yeah, I, I don't know Prince's story that well, except I know he was getting very political in the last years of his life. He had done a lot of different political things. He had written more political songs. He had uh, he had done, I think he had um, done something around Black Lives Matter, as a matter of fact. Um, done some stuff around that. I think he, um, I can't remember if he died right after Freddie Gray and did something around uh, Freddie Gray's uh, death in Baltimore, but I know he got a lot more involved in, in these horrible, um, you know, with trying to counter these horrible, you know, police brutality murders of mm-hmm. black people. And so, um, yeah, you know, people that that were closer to Prince, who I met, did say stuff about him, but I, I only met them after I came out with my book. Right. And I was already working on my film, so I couldn't include him in all this. Now he when, was such a great talent, such a great talent. Oh, he was. Sad. Such a great talent. Sad. Now, when you started to do your research on this book, was it hard to get people to come forth to talk to you? Um, well, I, it was that hard. I mean, my, my best primary research was on Tupac Shakur. But, you know, as I say, uh, I, I some people were you know, a little leery of, of what my angle was, but once they, they um, read my articles, they they really came forth in, in a big way. And so um, with uh, Kurt Cobain, it was just about, um, you yeah, know, it was a less primary research and more secondary research, except uh, talking to people like uh, Hank Harrison for hours mm-hmm. to get find the verification for all what he wrote in original um, free PDF he sent to me of his book he came out with, Love Kills. The PDF he originally sent out for free was twice the size of what he ended up putting out in a paperback um, you know, bound book. But um, and he sent it out to a lot of people, but... Um, he allowed me to, you know, he gave it to me for free and then talked to me for several hours as I got the key facts that I wanted for my book and said, okay, can you verify how you got this fact and this fact and this fact? And so I found back.
guy, because this guy, Stephen O'Leary, mm-hmm. um, who had sex with Courtney Love and took her out in Liverpool, where she passed out drugs like candy, um, ended up uh, writing uh, Hank Harrison a letter saying he was actually working for the CIA um, at the time of his death. And he says, well, it wasn't really officially for the CIA. I was just reporting to the embassy once a week, um, you know, in, in Ireland, the Irish embassy, when activities of certain subversives. And so um, he, he said that, he, that uh, he was on his deathbed at the time, and it was 2007, and he was dying in Minnesota. And so um, he was... He had been traveling and doing some of his work regarding Courtney Love with his brother Kevin O'Leary. So I found the obituary for Stephen O'Leary along with his brother Kevin and um, being part of his family being in Ireland and all the other stuff Hank Harrison said to confirm everything he said about this. And um, so, you know, this is some of the ways that um, I, I did that kind of primary research. With people like John Lennon, Jimmy uh, Hendrix obviously was having more secondary research because they you know, they were died so you know, much so much longer before. So. so my question is, if the government, you know, if the government's involved in all this, how did they receive your book? Did you get any backlash at all? Yeah, yeah, I've been spied on intensely for a long time. Um, uh, you know, I, I came out with a. Um, Kinko's Bound version of my FBI War on Tupac Shakur program, Black Leaders book, in 2006. I was living in New York City at the time, in the New York area, New York metropolitan area. Actually, I started in New York City and then moved into uh, my wife's place, my future wife's place, just uh, above New York in uh, the Marin, I'm sorry, in uh, New Rochelle, just above the Bronx. And, um, and so I came out with these uh, Kinko's Bound copy. I went to activist meetings and talked with some Black Panthers, gave them copies of the Kinko's Bound book, some of the Black Panthers took it, gave it to other people in other cities, and including um, Fred Hampton Jr., they gave a copy to him, I met up with him, and he uh, ended up giving me an afterword for that book, um, a poem he had written, and uh, so uh, a woman named um, Pam Africa, who was working with the Free, Free Mumia campaign, mm-hmm. um, got Mumia and gave a copy to me Abu Jamal in prison, and so he said, you know, donate um, part of one of my books to that, a chapter of my book in there, which I which he did for the intro, and so um, I um, I was getting around that way, but I still hadn't, you know, put out a perfect bound copy until I moved to Baltimore in 2007, and that's where I found the distributor that helped me put out a perfect bound copy uh, of the book, and, um, and so... Um, for years, I was having problems with my phone and with my internet, and I, my wife kept calling and trying to find out what's the problem with our phone and internet. So I was, meanwhile, I was selling, you know, more and more of my perfect down copy of FBI Watch Buck Score Black Leaders in 2009. I came up with the film, but I kept having problems with the phone. I would talk to a, um, a radio guy in uh, L.A., for example, from Pacifica Radio in L.A. on FM Radio in L.A. And um, about 15, 20 seconds after talking to him, all of a sudden my phone hangs up on me somehow. Don't know how. It's really bizarre. For actually, voicemail answers and the phone hangs up. Doesn't make any sense how that happened. Um, so things like that were happening. I was getting mm-hmm. phones hung up on me. I was getting people's internet uh, for their interviews weren't stopped working. 
all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Um, hearing things on my phone, all kinds of stuff that's happening. And uh, my internet would have problems at, at different times. So finally, my wife, uh, 2014, 15, I can't remember what, when it was exactly, she uh, gets gets somebody at Verizon to uh, go over the, all these problems that keep happening. And he says, she says, well, you know, we got your backup email, and it's, um, you know, something, 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 nypd.org wow. or something like that, okay? And so it's the New York Police Department. As the as a backup email to our internet to our uh, Verizon account, which is for our internet and our phone, and uh, so they've been spying on me uh, since 2006, and they followed me. You know, they still spied on me when I moved to Baltimore, and um, so that's just some of the uh, interference and crap I've gotten in surveillance and stuff that I've experienced. Yeah. I would expect that you did, you know, with with a book with something as explosive as this, because this is explosive One stuff. Second. I would expect that you did have issues because this book is explosive. Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, you know, I I'm glad that it is. I'm glad people have had good feedback, give me good feedback on the book and the film. The film's definitely gotten it even more exposure, and I'm really happy about that. Um, now, the people that are the suppliers, as far as close to these rock stars, do any of them ever end up, like, dead mysteriously or anything? Sorry, the people that are suppliers for the rock stars? Yeah, like you were talking about Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain, like like the women that, that, that are involved with these rock stars that, that are providing the drugs to them, do they uh, ever fall out of favor? Yeah, well, Courtney Love is just... Um in some kind of bizarre world right now. You know, she's, uh, her, her daughter at one point just, uh, just disowned her in some way, you know, and said she's moving in with her aunt, um, you know, Francis, um, Bean, um, mm -hmm. people just have a hard time taking her seriously. She's been, you know, gone through, uh, lawsuits with Francis's, uh, first husband. And, um, it's just a lot going on with her. She's, uh, you know, are now control. You know, I, I don't know what's happened with Yoko these days. I, I don't. Yoko's like I don't really talk that much about Yoko. I mean, either my book or film. But um, I, I just think uh, you know, there's, there was this guy that, that I mean, this woman that had said that Tupac had uh, kind of set her up to be uh, to be raped or not raped. It was like they said it was some kind of sex, be sexually abused by his friends. Mm -hmm. And but the friend she said sexually abused her was was an undercover agent named Haitian Jacques Ignat, and so um, she ends up coming out of nowhere and saying she's part of the Me Too movement, even though um, the only thing Tupac ended up getting found guilty of regarding her was touching her butt against her will after it was found that they had consensual sex, to which Tupac got one half to four and a half years in jail. That's a hell of a lot of jail time and a maximum security prison for touching a woman's butt against her will after she had consensual sex with her. Mm -hmm. Bizarre, you know, kind of, huh, kind of charge. Um, so, you know, this is the kind of stuff that, that, that happens. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know about all these cases. But, right. you know, nothing happened to the FBI undercover agent that set up, um, you know, Malcolm X's daughter. Um these are some of the things that are going on. I mean, and then you got a 
situations like um, I don't talk about this, and I'm going to talk about this in a future film. But Bernie, Bernie Dorn was like one of the top students for Democratic Society activists. Um, you know, rose up to one of the top two leadership positions of the Student Democrats for Democratic Society, which was the largest anti-war student movement in the country, probably, you know, arguably ever. And um, you know, people came into her life, and I share their likely undercover agents came into her life and convinced her to take a lot of acid. She hurt her mind with that acid. And um, and one of those people was a guy named Bill Ayers. Now, Bill Ayers comes from arguably one of the, the wealthiest family in um, Chicago of, of that time. This guy, his dad, was on the board of directors of General Dynamics, uh, you know, Defense contractor of Sears, Sears Roofing, you know, Sears Company, of um, the gas and electric company for Illinois, mm-hmm. Chicago, and most of Illinois. I mean, this guy was just incredibly wealthy, and um, and the best evidence is is that he actually did the bidding of U.S. intelligence uh, when he rose up in SDS and, and probably and got um, air, you know. Bernie Dorn to do acid for the first time, along with Mike Klonsky, um, to try to hurt their minds. Um, but Klonsky kind of resisted more after that. And but Dorn got sucked in, and um, so they Dorn ended up marrying uh, marrying Bill Ayers. Wow. But Bill Ayers is highly suspicious, um, and it's very sad because Bernie Dorn is just such a great activist. Uh, she's a lawyer. Um, she was in law school when she joined SDS. And um, she continues to be a great mind because, she, you know, she, she ended up sobering up after doing some really ridiculous things when she was on acid, like uh, lauding Charles Manson, for example. Um, and uh, But she sobered up. She did great work. I think she did great work with the Weather Underground. Now it's really radical, extreme work, but they, they, were, they were going to extremes to stop mm-hmm. you know, young Americans from getting killed in Vietnam and stopping the genocide of Vietnamese, you know, and, this crazy Vietnam War, but um, you know, I think she was manipulated uh, the rest of her life by Bill Ayers. I, I, I just, I think Bill Ayers, uh, sad to say, is um, doing his family's bidding. You know, very interesting. What's next for you? What's that? What's coming up next for you? Well, um, my next film is even more controversial because um, I hate to even say it because people. Are, I take offense, but um, I'm I am a big fan of the Kennedys. Um, you know, of course, I, I do cover JFK, John F. Kennedy's uh, assassination a little bit, and RFK in my book because RFK was killed by a drug-induced, hypnotized assassin. You know, in, in Sirhan Sirhan, according to my evidence, my film, book, and film. And uh, so, I'm a big fan of the Kennedys, and RFK Jr. Um, has really um, been an independent voice, I believe. He's come out with this best-selling book that's been highly censored, um, sold over a million copies in the first, say, six to eight weeks, mm-hmm. when what's, what is this COVID-19 vaccine, which turns out to be have killed uh, more people than all the vaccines uh, produced in the last 30 years combined. Uh, you know, this vaccine has caused uh, more deaths than all of them combined just in the past year or two I mean, since we started this vaccine. And... Uh, and so I wrote a book about the pandemic and this vaccine, and it's actually a kind of a, tries to put a comic spin on it off, like, and as crazy as that sounds. But I just had to try to do it, I had to do something more entertaining to 
going. And uh, but that's coming out July fifth. It's called Shots Eugenics to Pandemics. Mm, sounds interesting. And thanks, thanks. Yeah, it's coming out. It's gonna be on Tubi. It's gonna be on Amazon Prime. And it's gonna be about 10, 10 other digital platforms. So it's gonna be available in uh, Barnes and Noble, Best Buy, Walmart. Um, lots of independent record stores actually you know, have it on their catalog, so hopefully it's going get, to get out there. And then I have another film in line after that, which is going to be a comic version of Drugs as Weapons Against Us um, film, because originally I was just doing the comic version of Drugs as Weapons Against Us, mm-hmm. but when this pandemic started, um, I just I started, I thought I'd put in something about that at the very end of the film, mm-hmm. but then the whole film ended up becoming the you know, shots film. And the, all the stuff that I took out um, now is going to be uh, a new film about you know a comic version of Drugs and Weapons Against Us, believe it or not. So, which is going to include what I just said about you know other undercover agents, you know. So, absolutely, I'd love to get you back on to talk about that book. Uh, that'd be great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so come, come uh, July. I'd love to talk to you again about about the well, if you wanted to, if you're you're willing to about the. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I really appreciate that. Um, and hopefully we can figure out a way to make my camera work by then, okay? That's it. We'll see. And how can people find you? So uh, you can find me at drugsasweapons.com. Uh, drugsasweapons.com is, is my website. It's got a few other names, too, like johnpodash.com. But look at that up, drugsasweapons.com, and you can find out so much more um, about all, all my writing and projects and everything else. All right, John, thank you so much. And I'm sorry you had issues with your camera. Like I said, sometimes StreamYard works with people, sometimes it doesn't, you never know, you know. That's why I'm always prepared to do it. I'm always prepared to do it over the phone. All right, sir, you have a good evening. Thanks so much for uh, talking with me. It's it's enjoyable. Take care now. Bye-bye. Okay, that was was very interesting. And um, let me get adjusted here. I keep sinking into my chair. That was really interesting. I learned, you know, I learned quite a bit about uh, how drugs are moved around the country. You know, um, I, I admit that I am a, I, I, I'm a pain patient, you know, and I have to jump through the hoops for it. I've been taking pain medication for years, and I'm, uh, it's for quality of life, so I really have no choice. But, you know, I've seen the difference in how, the rate, how, how they're starting to regulate what I take. You know, and it's very unnerving sometimes, especially in the person I talked to earlier that went into that went from one prescriber to I mean went from one pharmacy to another was me. And when I first signed up for the first pharmacy, I had to fill out all this paperwork saying who I was, what I was taking, who my doctors were. Yeah, yeah. When I went to the second pharmacy to pick up, when I had to switch pharmacies, nobody asked me for that. Oh, you're in the database, and I said, what database? You're in the federal database. So. You know, it was different for me. That that frightened me because I thought, oh my gosh, I can go to any pharmacy in the U.S. and they've, they've got me on database how much I take, what I take, and how I take it. So, you know, that, that there is some government regulation going on. Anyway, happier note. Tomorrow, Nancy is going to be here, Nancy Matz, medium Nancy Matz. And we're going to stay on the topic of past lives. Because I know people had a lot of questions about um, how their past life could affect their current life. So that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow is how your past life affects things in this life and how it controls things in this life. Like, you know, you hear the stories about people that, 
have scars on their body or, or they or they have a bad leg or they're, 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 they're prone to back pain. That's what we're going to be talking about and how, and how that affects that. So that'll be tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific right here. Like it always is, right? And again, if you're listening from Facebook tonight, please, um, please, 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 please follow. You know, we're looking for followers because we're going to be doing some special things. We're going to, Nancy and I are going to have an announcement tomorrow night about a special event that we're going to be putting on on Facebook. So everybody needs to listen up and hear it. Okay. If you're over on YouTube, please subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. Um, you know, we're looking for subscribers. Plus, you know, like I said earlier, we have over 250 videos over there. And they're all different topics, like this topic, or you got topics about murder, you got topics about, you know, anything you can think of. Like I said, I'm a journalist, I'm a photojournalist, I like different topics. So that's what I do, okay? It's not all about ghosties and scary stuff. So anyway, check it out, you know, subscribe over our YouTube channel, that'll give you an out, that'll let you know when we have a new video coming up, or a new video out. And I'm going to be doing some how-to videos, so I'm going to be doing rehearsals on those this weekend. So I'm going to be doing some how-to videos, you know, on how to operate different paranormal equipment, doing reviews on different paranormal equipment, things like that. So we're going to be doing that. But I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate each and every one of you who came in and everybody out there that's listening. And I know everybody is really eager to watch TV, to, to watch the, the, the hearings tonight, you know, so I understand that. So uh, I kind of, I want to watch them too. In fact, I'm going to get off here and I'm going to go pop over and see what's going on if they're still on. But I want to thank you all. And uh, share. Share with five people. Share with five people you like. Share with five people you dislike. Because we want to get the word out about the show, right? Uh, visit CaliforniaHaunts.org for more information about the paranormal team. And if you want more information about the radio show, be, be sure to visit CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Because that's where we headquarter the radio show. Uh, you see that little thing floating at the bottom? That's because the, we don't charge for any of our services as a, as a paranormal team. And uh, so it all comes out of my pocket because I'm the owner. So not only does the stuff for the paranormal team come out of my pocket, the stuff like lights, cameras, and all that that I use here for the show comes out of my pocket too. So if you could find it in your heart to help me out a little bit, you know, I'm paying for internet, I'm paying all those expenses. Because I want to keep this show going. I want to keep giving information to people. I'm a retired journalist. That's what I do. It's what I want to do. So if you could help me out with that, that would be great. PayPal.com, PayPal.me at Or if you don't like PayPal, Venmo. And just type in California Haunts. But anyway, I'm going to show you his contact information, his book, and where to get it. And then I'm going to sign off tonight. So you guys can, you know, get, get back to your business. All right, so here we go. Uh, website.johnpotash.com and the book is Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And of course you can get it at amazon.com or you can get it directly from his website. And I think he gets more money if you get it directly from his website. That's what uh, I was told last night about the other guy. You know, from, from the other guy or the night before. Okay, guys, I will see you tomorrow. Same place, same time. And uh, have a good evening, and yeah, see ya.